For many years now, especially the last 50 to 60 years of modernity, there has been a lot of lore around the return of Jesus or the second coming. As a kid growing up in a pastor's home, I was terrified because of books and movies like Left Behind, TV evangelists saying the rapture, the rapture is uh, this idea out of 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, that we'll all be caught up in the air with him, that this could happen at any specific date, and songs like People Get Ready, Jesus is Coming by Crystal Lewis. If you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you remember this stuff. This was often up in our face and on the proverbial radar of most Christians in the 80s and the 90s. And I remember as a kid, I was terrified that the rapture would happen while I was in the park playing with my friends and I would return home and my parents would be gone when I returned home and I would have to get the mark of the beast to survive and I would probably get my head chopped off by the new world order and on and on my fears went. And one fear that I've shared with some of you here, at the peak of my most fearful moments of the rapture, was that I always made sure to wear clean underwear. As I was certain that at, at the time the rapture came, my clothes would get left behind, and the one time I didn't wear clean underwear, people would know that were left behind and they would judge me on it. Yes, it's irrational, I know, but it was built into the evangelical psyche to be fearful and not hopeful of the return of Jesus. So today will be another first for us. We will address what Jesus says about what will happen at the end of the age or the end of time. This fits within the study, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say a big theological term here. This fits within the study of eschatology or the study of the end times within the framework of theology. So let me just ask a few questions. Have you taken time to think about this biblically? Or are you still tied to a sense of what popular authors may have said? Songs or even movies, or maybe you're scrolling social media a lot and that's what you believe. So church, let us not be tied to someone's opinions or to our feelings, but let us trust in the words of Christ about what, ha what he says has taken place and will take place about his own return. Do we find rest in moments like this or does it trap us in fear and anxiety? What does that say about what we believe about God's word? Do we trust God's word or would we rather it say something else so we can experience a life of ease at the expense of our souls? So let's look at Mark chapter 13 beginning in verse 1. It says, And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be here one left here, excuse me, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. 
This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So as a quick reminder, until, until we arrive to Mark chapter 15, we're still in part two of Mark's narrative. Part two is, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Peter proclaims in chapter 8 that this man they had been following for some time now is the anticipated one, the Christos, the Messiah, the anointed one of God who has come to save sinners. Listen, church, this is the framework we need as we navigate even these deeply dense chapters like chapter 13. Biblical scholars believe that chapter 13 is known as the Olivet Discourse, and you'll see why in just a minute. And this is one of the toughest chapters in the Gospels to interpret. But we're going to do our best together, and we're going to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Okay, so let's take a collective deep breath, and let's remember that God's Word makes things plain for us. So looking at verses 1 and 2 of Mark 13, this discourse begins somewhat precariously as the first two verses describe to us something that Jesus and his disciples are doing, or there's a move they are making here. This is days before Jesus is arrested, before he's tried and crucified, but Mark chooses to somewhat slow down, and he, he peers into a prediction that Jesus makes about the future. Look at verse 1. It says, and as he came out of the temple, this is packed with meaning, church. This will be the last time the Lamb of God steps into this man-made edifice before he begins to make the new temple, or as Jesus says himself, to prepare a place for his people. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel mentions this in Ezekiel eleven twenty-three. 23. You can turn there if you'd like but it should be up on the screen for you. Ezekiel eleven twenty three 23 says this, pay attention. It says, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. This is known as Ichabod, or the glory of the Lord has departed. For Jesus to walk out and leave the temple is a sure sign of what is to come. Then one of his disciples is awestruck at the beauty of the temple. He says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And we're unsure if this disciple had never seen the temple, but for some reason, he's struck and he's overwhelmed by the beauty of it. Historians believe it was a, it was a true masterpiece before it was destroyed in 70 AD. A commentary I was reading this week says, Herod's temple looked like a mountain of marble decorated with gold. Look at verse 2. 
Jesus is not at all phased by the beauty of the temple as he makes a remark that is chocked full of prophetic warning. The temple would be destroyed, but the question has to be, why? Why would the temple be destroyed? This is saturated with gospel truth here. There is a temple church being built not by human hands or defiled by idols like this one was. And Jesus himself, who's speaking these words, is the builder. He is the chief architect. He is the one who is going to build a better temple. Let's skip down to verses three to eight. Then we're launched neck deep into eschatological profundity. Jesus sits, the Bible says, Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives, which is just east of the temple. And four of his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they come to him and they ask him two questions in private. This is what they ask him. When will this happen? And what are the signs leading up to it? They, they want to be in the know. They want to know when this is going to happen. Give us a specific date and tell us the signs that are coming so that we can know when this specific date is coming. Look at verse 5. Jesus doesn't as much answer this question as he begins with a warning. It says in verse 5, he says, see that no one leads you astray. This is the main idea of this passage. See that no one leads you astray. In the parallel to this section in Mark, if you look in Matthew's account, it tells us that Jesus gave seven woes or seven warnings, proclamations of warnings to the religious leaders that questioned him. This is, you can find this in Matthew 23. In these woes, he calls them, he calls the religious leaders blind guides. They would lead people astray as they themselves, they didn't even know the right way. But church, the warning goes much deeper, that the disciples would need to know the way to not be led astray. So if you've ever, um, if you've ever thought about counterfeit, like counterfeit money, specifically. If you've ever been to, a, to like the movies or somewhere and you give them a $20 bill, they take out this marker and they mark it to see if it's counterfeit. Well, in the FBI, uh, if to, to study counterfeit money, what they do is they study the real thing. They take years and years and years and they, they look at a real $20 bill or a real $100 bill or a real $50, do $50 bills, I don't know if they still exist, but they look at the actual denomination and they study it for years. So anytime a counterfeit comes through, guess what the FBI does? They're like, nope, this is off, or this is off, or this is off. Listen, church, how would you know a counterfeit gospel? How would you know? Paul dedicates a whole book to this in Galatians. You can read it for yourself in the New Testament. There's a counterfeit gospel that has infiltrated the church. How would you know if someone stood up here in the pulpit and preached a counterfeit gospel? Because we take so much time to look at the real gospel, at the biblical gospel, at the true gospel. Church, that's what we're that's, that's what we're tasked with, is to know 
the true and biblical gospel so that any time a counterfeit comes across, we would know. Look at verses 6 through 8. Jesus begins to describe a chain of events that will take place soon after Jesus dies, rises, and ascends. False Christs or antichrists will come and say they are the Messiah. They'll lead people to apostasy or denying the faith. And you'll hear, Jesus says, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes or cataclysmic events like famines. And Jesus says, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So how many of you are sitting here thinking, yep, this is actually happening now as we speak. And this is concerning language that Jesus uses here, and it's not mere imagery. We have seen some of this take place in our lifetime. But let's not miss something that's tucked away in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Jesus says this. He says, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Do you, you see how he bookends this? He begins it by saying, church, don't be alarmed. This has to happen, but the end is not coming yet. The end is not happening yet. Church, we need the calm assurance of Christ. We need to not panic at these things. It has to happen. The question is why? Why does this have to happen? Here's why. It's telling a story of redemption. It's telling a story of redemption. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Listen to this, what the Apostle Paul says here. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For their creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is telling a story of redemption. And church, my ask is, of, of not only of you, but of me too, is let's not get caught up in all the happenings that Jesus mentions here. Keep your eyes fixed on the one who reigns above them all. And one of the most mentioned phrases in Scripture is, do not be afraid. Do you see this as an imperative? Do you see this as this is what you must do? Or do you simply see it as a suggestion? Do not be afraid. Listen, if my master, Jesus, says not to be afraid, then I will not fear. This is why praying the Psalms is so important. You look at Psalm 46, you read that whole, 
We sing a song about Psalm 46. And there's this, this part in Psalm 46 that says, be still and do what? And know that I am God. Be still and know. Do not be afraid. And all of this continues to press on us in ways that help us see the sign we need has already come in the Lord Jesus himself. Listen, church, what more proof do we need? Some of you are here and you're just like, Ricky, I'm just waiting on a sign. And, and I, I, get, I understand what you mean. Maybe it's a job change. Maybe it's something in, within a relationship. Whatever it may be. You're like, Ricky, I just, I just need a sign from heaven. I'm going to tell you this. The sign has come. The sign has come in the wisdom of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Church, we don't need a sign. We need the word. We need the wisdom that comes with his word. Look at verses 9 through 13. Jesus gets personal here. This will affect them. He tells the disciples that you will suffer, and for many of them, it will be under great persecution. Verse 9 begins with a stern imperative. He says, Jesus says, but be on your guard. Wayne read it for us this morning out of 1 Thessalonians. Be sober-minded. And this original language in the Greek, it would have read as, you watch over yourselves. Have you ever had someone tell you that? Maybe it was grandma or grandpa. You watch over yourself. Stay alert. And this is not language like Jesus is saying, stay alert with your backs to the walls and always fretting over what hasn't happened yet. But stay alert with your hands on the plow and your eyes fixed to the heavens. Continue to do the work, church, and keep your eyes fixed for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses this language with Timothy as he tells, he tells Timothy to keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Listen, doctrine matters. We must know theological ideas. We must know doctrine, church. It's important. It's not this idea of all I need is Jesus. You know how you know Jesus? Doctrine. You know how you know Christ? theology. That's why we, we harp on it here so much. To be certain of what we believe is of utmost importance. This is why the creeds of the early church matter. This is why catechisms matter. This is why the five solas of the Reformation matter. They keep us from heresy or being led astray. They act as guardrails for our lives. And one thing I believe the church of today is missing is discernment. If it sounds good or it sounds close to being good or being biblical, we believe it. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, says, discernment is not a matter of telling the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is telling the difference between right and almost right. But Jesus is not saying, if you're on your guard, then you'll be kept from the misery of suffering and persecution. His warning is to be sober-minded so that when persecution comes, you will not be led astray. He goes on to tell his disciples what is about to happen in the next few weeks, months, 
and years. He says, you'll be arrested and you'll be tried. You'll be falsely accused. You'll be beaten up and you'll have to stand before the highest courts in the land. And you will be imprisoned for the message of the gospel. If you take time to read the book of Acts in the New Testament, this all happens. Everything Jesus promised them happens. Look at verse 10, Mark chapter 13. This is a hinge verse. We need this verse. It it takes us to the next few verses. The gospel must be proclaimed to the whole world. And this is, listen church, this is not a promise that when the gospel is preached to the whole world, it will trigger the return of Christ. But it's an imperative of what Jesus expects. Our king has commanded the message go out to everyone, so we're obedient to his call of gospel proclamation. This is what this whole narrative is about. If you look back at Mark chapter one, verse one, it says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of the gospel. The gospel must go out. Listen church, our king has commanded that we proclaim the gospel to our neighbors, to our family, to our coworkers, to our enemies. Is that not enough? Or, or do you need some kind of payback? Well, Jesus, if I share the gospel with this guy, I mean, he's tough. Like, I really don't like being around him. He kind of smells funny. Um, no one really likes him. Uh, if I share the gospel with him, will you, can you help me out? Like, I, I need a new car, uh, or I need a new house, or something like that. Jesus, listen, that's not the hope of the gospel, is that we'll be paid back for proclaiming it. If our king says to do it, we do it. If he says to jump, we ask how high. This is what our king commands and expects of our lives as Christians. And then Jesus continues with what seems like bleak news in verses 11 through 13. He says simply, when they arrest you and you stand trial, your closest family will deliver you over even to death. You'll be hated. These things will happen to the disciples and those who come after. It is unavoidable that at some point, like like has happened before, the church will face serious persecution from their governments, employers, and even blood relatives. Listen, church, we have not, here in the United States, we have not experienced persecution. You posting something on Facebook and someone saying something that you might disagree with, that's not persecution. That's just you not being able to get over yourself. Listen, there are Christians in China right now who are literally, have to meet in secret because if they're caught, they will be arrested and killed. That is persecution. When COVID, like when COVID was a thing, you know, like, I don't know, is it a thing still? I have no idea. When it was a thing and we were having to like not meet together, like, oh my gosh, this is persecution from our government. We saw snapshots of what could come. The question is, are you ready? Are we ready as the church? We could be one generation removed from brother turning on sister, 
from mother turning on father for the sake of Christ. Are we ready? Are we prepared? And I don't want us to miss a few phrases in the last five verses. In verse 9, Jesus says, for my sake. And then he says it again in verse 13. He says, for my name's sake. At the end of this section, Jesus bookends it with what seems like, endure through all this persecution and you'll earn salvation. But listen, church, this is why we need to learn how to read and study the Bible. So let's, let's look for, first at namesake. Why does Jesus say namesake? If Mark repeats something that Jesus says, it means, it, it has meaning, and we can't miss this. All of this is happening to his beloved people because it happened or is happening to him too. If it happened to Christ, and it's happening to them for the glory of Christ. To be in Christ, listen church, to be in Christ is to be in his name. We are Christians, we are Christians. We are in his name. We are protected by his name and for his name. Even if it means the worst kind of persecution, listen church, even if it means death. It's for his name's sake. Then the last sentence of verse 13. This is not saying, if you endure, it's saying, because you endured. Enduring persecution for the sake of Christ's name is proof you are His. You hold all you have and all you endure loosely. Why? Because you are held by the hands who endured. So the end of of this section here, Jesus is not saying like, just, just endure, just endure, and then you'll be saved. He's saying, your endurance is the fruit of your salvation. It will get you to the end. It's an encouragement here to them and to us as well. There's an indicative in verse 11, and I want to leave you with this. We're going to end with this, then we're going to sing. A great persecution, I said this earlier, a great persecution could be coming soon to the church. We have no idea what awaits us. Would you be willing to speak the gospel no matter what? Even if it meant being arrested. Even if it meant being beaten and killed. And some of us have a tough time even vocalizing the gospel to family and friends. Verse 11 gives us a rock-solid promise. It says, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but who? The Holy Spirit. But let's not mystify this and thus miss what Jesus is saying here. What will the Holy Spirit speak, th- speak through you? Excuse me. Look at John 14, 26. John 14, 26. This is what the Holy Spirit will speak through you. It says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is what the Holy Spirit says, is this. Some of us might be waiting for some like mystical experience and like, oh, God spoke to me. 
Church, I don't believe that's how God speaks. I believe God has spoken once and for all. And this is, if this isn't enough, then you're going to continue looking for another sign. And some of you are sitting here thinking like, Ricky, I thought you were going to talk about the return of Jesus and how it's going to happen and all this stuff. And you're sitting here, you know, you're telling us that we need to preach the gospel. Listen, the second coming of Christ is, is it all has to do with the gospel. It's because of, his, because of his perfect life, his substitutionary death on a cross, his grave robbing resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he awaits for what? His second coming. It all has to do with the gospel. It all has to do with the good news. So listen, church, how do you know? This, this first part, and this is going to get you coming back for next week, because we are going to talk about the return of Christ. How do you know that you're ready for the return of Christ? How do you know you're ready? Because you're busy working like he's already here. You're busy working like he's already here. That's how you know you're ready for the return of Christ. One last passage. I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come up. First Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Listen to Peter's encouragement here. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You notice the, the, the language that Paul uses here? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. That's the main idea of these 13 verses here, is we must be ready. How do you know that you're ready for the return of Christ? It's because you're busy working like he's already here. Remember that. Are you working like he's already here? Or are we constantly, um, are we constantly distracted by something that we carry around in our pocket? Constantly scrolling things and, and, and living in anxiety because this guy said this on TikTok and this guy said this on Instagram and this lady said this on Facebook. Let us quiet those voices and look to his word and see what it says about the return of Christ. I wish I was there in, in, in those moments because the disciples are like, uh, like, like you, you're talking about this temple that it's gonna come crashing down? And Jesus is like, it is. Think about that calm assurance, the posture, the, the humble posture of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, it is, it's all gonna come to an end and I'll return and I'll judge the living and the dead. So I want to make two invitations this morning, and they're a little different. We try to do this week in and week out. The first one is, is if you're here and you're like, Ricky, I, I couldn't tell you if I'm a Christian or not. I, I don't know about this whole Christianity thing. It's just kind of, 
It's kind of strange to me. Christians act weird, you know, they believe some really weird things and they put out some really weird movies and books and it's just kind of strange. My question to you is, aside from all that, are you in Christ? If you died today, because tomorrow is not promised, if you died today, would you stand before him and be judged on your works that would not be enough? Or would you be judged on the name of Christ? Would you only enter into his rest because you are in Christ? If you're here this morning, you're being crushed under the weight of your sin, come to Christ. Repent of your sin. Turn your back on it and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, and lastly, if you are in Christ, if you're here and you're like, Ricky, yes, I'm a Christian. My encouragement to you is to stay awake. Stay sober-minded. Be watchful. Keep, our, keep your hands on the plow, working as the Lord Jesus Christ was already here, looking to the eastern sky, to where he will split it one day and return. Listen, church, and the whole world will know. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Christ and he alone is king. Let's pray.